The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk, and today we're speaking with Nora Gagoudis. She is an experienced nutritional consultant, speaker, and educator, and she is widely a widely recognized expert on what is popularly, popularly referred to as the paleo diet. She's the author of the international best-selling book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. Nora, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, so what made you decide to write this book? Well, you know, it, it's, a, it's actually a, a pretty, it can be a long story. I guess I'm going to try to um, uh, abbreviate it somewhat for you. But uh, a number of years ago, I was working in a, I was actually supervising a neurofeedback clinic in uh, Eugene, Oregon. And, and I had just arrived there and um, and, and there was a young man that I was working with that, uh, who was, had been diagnosed with ADHD and Tourette's and you know, whatever else have you. And he'd been uh, coming to the clinic for some time prior to my arrival and had really been struggling with his progress. And mind you, we tend to get really great results with, you know, with, with all kinds of things doing neurofeedback, but this kid was really struggling, and and uh, one day he walked in, and and his head was sort of hanging down, and and uh, this was an eleven year old kid, and I and I really, I thought he was one of the most thoughtful and and sweet young men I'd ever met. So you know he was really special to me. So seeing him down and out just you know really grabbed me, and I and I asked him, I said you know, hey, what's going on? You know, you look really down. He said, well, you know, he said, I, you know, I was ticking on the way over here, you know, in the car, and it was driving my mom nuts, and then she blew up at me, and now I feel bad, and she feels bad, and I'm like, whoa, 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 you feel bad. I said, what's going on with you? I said, are you, are you angry, upset, you feel guilty, what's going on? He says, well, I feel guilty, he said. Now, this is an 11-year-old male, right? <laughs> he Aww. said, I I, I can't possibly know what it's like for her to have a son like me. And she can't know what it's like for me either. And, he, and he, we walked into the room, and he slumped into the chair and kind of kicked the wall, and he says, I hate this ADHD. I hate all this stuff. I hate the ticking. And I'm thinking, okay, something's really wrong with this picture because this kid really wants to be helped. And so I said, kid, sit tight. I'm going to go and talk to your mom for a minute. So I went into the waiting room, sat down with mom, and I said, How's, how are things going? And she burst into tears and 
and said, I don't know. And I just, you know, it feels like two steps forward, one step back, and I just don't know anymore. And, and we're running out of sessions. We can't afford to go on. And, and, I, and suddenly this light bulb went off in my head. And, you know, I'd spent quite a number of years, um, um, you know, as a nutritionist and, and, you know, and had sort of, you know, arrived at this sort of new understanding that I have. And I thought, okay, I'm going to put that hat on for a second. And I said, talk to me about what he eats. You know, and the kid was, you know, he'd grab a piece of toast in the morning. You know, he liked to snack on chips and whatever. He doesn't eat, you know, he doesn't eat much protein. He doesn't eat much this or that. You know, he really, you know, he likes his carbs. It's like, aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So I gave her my, my elevator version homily, if, if I do indeed have one. And, and she kind of looked at me and said, wow, you know, that, that, that's a big change, you know, for him. Um, she said, I don't know, that, that would be a lot. And I said, well, I said, in two weeks, we're going to know something. And I said, it's, it's in, I think this is something important to rule out. And she said, okay, the whole family will do it. We'll just all do it together and support him, etc." And I said, okay, that sounds awesome. One week later, we had a normal kid. One week later, we had a kid who wasn't ticking anymore. One week later, we had a kid who was way calmer. Now, he was having cravings for carbs like crazy, and so I talked to my boss about, you know, what do you say about, um, uh, you know, me making an adjustment to a more hypoglycemic protocol? He said, absolutely do it, you know, whatever. So I, I did that, and, and he leveled out, and we talked about making sure he got more fat and all that. And anyway, um, you know, my boss came into my room, and he closed the door, and he said, I want you to do what you did with that kid with every single patient that comes into this office. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and he was adamant about it. He wanted that to be a part of what happened in his clinic. And so, and I was seeing, you know, 10 to 12 clients a day, every day, five days a week, lucky to get a 15-minute break for lunch kind of a thing. And so people are filing in, and I'm trying to have this conversation with them. And you know, most of them were fairly interested, but, you know, I start glazing over because it's just too much to take in. And it was quite frustrating, and it was hard for me to do the work that I did. So um, I went home over the weekend, and in a, you know, an inspired moment or in a fit of frustration or some combination there, I sat down in front of what was, yes, a typewriter, and I began typing out... Um, a, uh, you know, an article, and it was like a 10-page article, kind of trying to cover some of the basics. And I started printing that off and handing it out to people. And then I think, oh, but I forgot this, and I really need to add that, and what about this? And then I, some of my patients or, or clients were, were uh, you know, were medical practitioners, you know, were doctors and nurses and things like that, and they'd say, well, you know, this is very interesting, but where do you get this information? It's like, shit, I have to start, excuse my French, I, I, I have to start putting, um, you know, some references. I have to start, you know, providing references for where I'm getting all of this. So I started adding that. And it began to mushroom. And over about, um, you know, it eventually mushroomed into about a 100-page manuscript that I was running to Kinko's and copying off and getting spiral-bound and, and handing out to... Um, you know, to, to clients. And eventually, uh, it, it kind of stayed there for a little while. And then I, 
you know, my learning didn't stop. I began to connect some new dots, and I came to some new realizations and was sort of gobsmacked with some things, and I thought, you know, it's time for me to redo this thing, and I need to do it right. You know, I, I think I just need to put it all in one place and, and somehow publish it. And that's, you know, I spent um, you know, a good part of it, better part of a year uh, rewriting it and adding new material and finding illustrations, etc. And um, I initially self-published it in 2009, and that I, it just as just as a thing to do, I had no marketing aspirations. I had no delusions of grandeur with it. I was just wanted to put my ideas in, in something that could be handed out. Ultimately, um, it just went kind of viral, and I was eventually a couple years later. Uh, I mean, I was being invited to speak at UCLA, invited to speak at all these universities in Australia. It was like crazy what happened with that self-published book, and. And eventually, I got approached by another uh, by a publisher uh, that said, "We love this book, and we'd like to do it upright." And I, at that point, had quite a bit of new material. I had lamented not adding, you know, to the other book uh, some new studies that had just come out, etc. So I, I jumped at the chance to do it, and I'm really glad I did because there were a lot of problems with the self-published version. There's yeah. A lot so, of- so. Nora, what, what were you, um, you know, w- with the diet changes that you were making for people, what do you see as a main thing that most people need to do to, to get the same results that, that that boy had? Well, right. So, well, so much, of course, you know, I, I have, uh, so much depends on the individual. A lot, a lot depends, but there, there is a core sort of foundational approach that I take to things. I look at diet and health from a from an evolutionary or, you know, I, largely from an evolutionary perspective, at least as a, the foundations of it are come from an evolutionary perspective. In other words, what were the selective pressures that that made us who we are, that that basically established um, our nutritional requirements, that established our physiological makeup. And I don't see that as the, the end piece. I see that as the beginning. From there, the way I nuance it is, is based upon, initially uh, based upon, I, I also have looked at human longevity research because, you know, our ancestors did certain things that they did, and, and they did a variety of things in different places around the world, and we can't just assume that everything they did was equally good for them. You know, so how would we know what, what you know, to, to follow? And um, longevity research kind of illuminates that pathway a little bit more and allows us to kind of, uh, uh, well, pun, I guess it's a bit of a pun, but separate the wheat from the chaff. Of course, this is a totally grain-free approach. but um, And so it distills things down to a more fundamental level of what is likely to optimize human health, what is likely to compromise it. And I also take into account the world that we live in today and, and the, currently the selective pressures that we are facing as a species, which I believe are more challenging than anything our ancestors were ever faced with. And so when I distill all that down, I have one particular foundational approach, but then when I um, meet with individuals, uh, we try to figure out what the individual needs of a person are to figure out how to nuance that. But that's all nuance. 
Um, so the foundational approach, which I think is important to probably outline here, because we've gone a few minutes without even really talking about what we're talking about, um, is, is that, of course, we are all genetically, um, 100% of us are genetically hunter-gatherers, whether, you know, no matter what our ideology is, what our, you know, uh, what our wishes might be, that's, you know, physiologically, evolutionarily, genetically, we're all 100% hunter-gatherers. Um, meaning that we are designed, uh, extremely well designed, in fact, uh, to obtain a highly significant portion of our caloric intake from animal source foods. Does that mean we eat, need to eat a lot of meat? Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, the indications are that it's much better to moderate our protein intake to just what we require throughout the day as opposed to just eating as much as, as we might want of that. And that it turns out that has some uh, exceptional health benefits, but it does supply us with... Um, complete source animal proteins that that our body is extremely well designed to handle, not just handle, but to thrive upon, and all the nutrients that go with that. It's not just about protein. It's about all of the nutrients that go with these foods that are frequently not available in plant source foods. And it, it also appeals to our unique digestive system, which is hydrochloric acid-based, um, meaning that when we ingest protein, our body, uh, you know, complete protein, our body, it stimulates the production of hydrochloric acid and also intrinsic factor, which we need to absorb B12, and um, and sets quite a lot, a large range of things in motion. And that hydrochloric acid is not just used to break down the protein. It's also used to ionize the minerals that we require. We have to ionize our minerals, most of them in order to make healthy use of them. If they're not in ionic form, by the time they hit our bloodstream, we're not really able to do very much with them. That's, that's good. Um, and so, and it also sets the stage for what happens in the rest of our digestive system because it's uh, the, the pH of our stomach sets up a signaling um, process that, um, that, signals other digestive processes, including pancreatic enzyme release, um, you know, and bicarbonate release uh, in, in our small intestine, and cholecystokinin release, which, which stimulates the release of bile into the small intestine for, for digestion, and on down the line. And, and, and it's all a north to south process. So animal source foods set, up, set the stage for healthy digestion. They really do. Um, and, um, and then one of the things that it turns out we're not particularly well equipped to deal with is the diet that is, that contains significant amounts of carbohydrate-based foods. Carbohydrate, when, and when I say carbohydrate-based foods, I'm talking about utilizable carbohydrates. I'm talking about sugar and starch that, um, that in the wild, as we were, you know, working to survive and, and uh, in our natural environments, throughout the better part of the year, there wasn't um, a lot of that sort of thing available to us. And we certainly would have eaten whatever was available. But, but we had a preferential um, tendency to seek out the meat and the fat, especially, 
of extremely large herbivores. And so um, fat actually would have dominated our diet as calories for the better part of our evolutionary history. Um, we have to remember that the world wasn't as it is now. We became human by surviving disasters, climatic and you know, all other forms of natural changes that challenged us and at times probably made it extremely hard to procure food in any meaningful quantity. And so... So, Nora, um, um, we're going to have to take a quick break here. Oh, sure. Um, and we're going to, we'll pick this up when we come back. Today, we're talking to Nora Gagoudis. She is the author of Primal Body, Primal Mind, Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. We're going to be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded with information daily about happy life strategies, beauty products, and business success ideas. Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. Shelly will explore and recommend proven business ideas as well as show you how to use the law of attraction to create health, happiness, and a prosperous business. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. And today we're speaking with Nora Gagoudis. She's the author of Primal Body, Primal Mind, Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. So, Nora, can you tell us, you know, you told that story about the boy who, um, you know, yeah. he was craving carbs and you just made these changes. And, of course, he continued to crave carbs. But I know in the in the paleo diet, grains and, and gluten especially are, are a, a big deal and can you just explain what's going on there and and why that is such a big deal for people yeah absolutely well basically for 2.6 million years as undergatherers we consumed a diet that was primarily made up of animal source foods and a few uh, assorted plant foods as is regionally or seasonally available and and uh, all of a sudden we uh, arrived at an abrupt and cataclysmic end to what, what we think of as the last ice age. We're actually still in it, but it was 
we've gone through, you know, all these courses, like 90 periods of glacial advance and glacial retreat since we um, began evolving. And um, from, from our primate, uh, you know, antecedents. Um, so at any rate, all of a sudden, uh, more than half of the world's megafauna suddenly disappeared in the blink of an eye. And this is relatively recently now understood as to why that happened. It used to be thought that they died because we overhunted them or whatever. Um, that isn't what happened. Uh, the planet changed, and it changed very abruptly and very decisively. And probably left us, you know, would left us without our major food supply. Suddenly no woolly mammoth, suddenly no mastodon, suddenly no giant sloths, no giant oryx, no Irish elk, no, you know, and on and on and on of the things that we were accustomed to hunting for food. So we shifted to hunting smaller game that was more fleet of foot and leaner, and uh, fat became that much more precious um, to us. But, um, and it made us highly selective in terms of what we hunted. But, um, but we were also kind of forced, I think, in some ways to, to come up with other options. And there was a development of, or, uh, or rather, you know, somebody had the idea to cultivate grains, you know, the, these wild plant foods that, um, that were abundant certain times of the year that could be, uh, you, know, uh, it, you know, sort of picked and stored and seemed to, you know, stay around. And at some point we figured out that we could make beer out of it, and I think that's when the die was cast, really. Um, <laughs> must have been a Canadian, right? Canadian. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, we, you know, it forced us to shift from, from being nomadic to becoming rather stationary. Now, mind you, when you look at the stable isotopic data from human uh, bone collagen remains from throughout human history that is able to evaluate what we ate at different points in our history. There was no point in history prior to the agricultural revolution where grains made up any significant portion. Uh, as a matter of fact, they really they couldn't find really any evidence of grains showing up in the stable isotopic data uh, at all. It was all huge amounts of animal protein. Um, but obviously we would have noshed on them from time to time as we were moving along, and, and somebody just sort of had the idea to do something with that. And it changed everything. We suddenly began, you know, and so, you know, we, we became uh, more uh, focused in our population centers, and, you know, we became farmers as opposed to hunters. We went from a, a hunter-gatherer workday that was maybe about three hours uh, worth of work, uh, you know, you hunt, you gather, and you're done, as opposed to eight hours of backbreaking labor in the fields, uh, toiling for a food source that was relatively new to us as a species, and something to which we had not adapted as a species, and something that was, in any case, nu greatly nutritionally inferior, and it was also a very carbohydrate-based food, but it's interesting to point out that the protein in grains, which we all know of as gluten, is actually not even digestible by humans. So it wasn't really a viable protein source for us. It was a source of calories. It was something that could keep us alive. Um, and I think that the insulin generated by all of that 
you know, probably led to a fairly rapid population growth because the body sees an opportunity to reproduce uh, when, well, it sees an opportunity to reproduce too when there's a lot of protein, but, but insulin sort of supercharges that. And so uh, we're living in one place and suddenly you know, human population growth sort of explodes. But we actually, people complain about the idea that um, hunter-gatherers didn't live a very long life. Oh, we only lived about 40 years back then. And that, that really, um, what they're referring to is an, is an average uh, rate of mortality, and that, that takes into account uh, infant mortality as well. And we have to understand that there's a, there's a relative disparity in the rates of hostility between their environment and the modern environment where we're relatively protected from predators and elements and, and things like that. And so, um, but they, our hunter-gatherer antecedents lived considerably more without disease. Uh, they lived much healthier lives, um, and we know that from looking at, you know, the remains of these people. The, if you look at the skull morphology of a pre-agriculture human, there's just no comparison. It, it, it's virtually, it, it looks like a work of art. It, it's perfect in its form. All the teeth fit in, in, the, in the mouths. Um, the palates are broad and um, there's no crowding of, uh, you know, of teeth. There's no bone abnormalities. There aren't any, they can't see any sign of defects in the skeletal structure at all. Uh, tremendous bone density, tremendous muscularity. And what ultimately happened is once we adopted agriculture as a more primary means of procuring our food, we literally lost half of our lifespan um, in, in, in a very short amount of time uh, following, uh, following that. Um, mind you, we've gotten a lot of that back uh, thanks to things that are able to prop us up and keep us alive. It sort of reminds me of Weekend at Bernie's a little bit. Um, but so can you, can you tell us a... Our health. Can you tell us a little bit more about gluten? I know I think that's had a, a, a more popularity even than the paleo diet, although I think everybody, you know, has heard of paleo. But, um, you know, gluten seems to be kind of something that, that's sticking around. It doesn't seem to be a fad. And, and you know, having counseled no, it, thousands it, it, well, of people, well, yeah. No, I mean, the, the idea that, that, uh, that you sometimes see in the popular press that, oh, you know, that's just a fad, uh, or, or there was one, you know, very funny piece that seemed to, to claim, oh, you know, they, they looked at the signs, oh, it isn't true, it, it's all, you know, so, so, yeah, nothing to see here, folks, just move on. Well, that's, that's malarkey. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of studies now talking about the various ways in which he, uh, gluten can impact um, you know, the life, uh, literally every single organ and system in your body, right from your hair follicles down to your toenails and pretty much everything in between. Um, it's, it's, it's a food source that we are absolutely not designed to consume in any manner, shape, or form. And in one of the things that it does when you consume it is it stimulates the release of an enzyme called zonulin. And zonulin basically controls intestinal permeability. It also controls blood-brain barrier permeability. So it takes the, your small intestine, which normally has, um, you know, sort of say, you know, there's a, there's a popular New York nightclub and there is a, you know, a seven-foot tall and four-foot wide, you know, bouncer standing at the front door 
making sure that only the cool people get in, right? That's sort of what happens in your small intestine. It's highly selectively permeable. It only allows certain things through that belong there. What happens with, um, um, with when zonulin hits your small intestinal wall is that it's kind of like it almost knocks the door, it knocks the whole wall down, and it allows whatever to get in. And suddenly the party isn't cool anymore, is it? <laughs> um, and and so these things are then able these uh, frequently not fully digested proteins and things like that 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 manage to get down there because very few people digest very well um, are able to hit your bloodstream and and your immune system sees them and doesn't recognize them as something that belongs and it signals an alarm. That sets up an inflammatory reaction, um, causes aspects of your immune system to tag that thing as as an unwelcome invader, and it, it um, becomes an immune reaction. Now, it doesn't. Not everybody has an immunologic reactivity to gluten. That's true. Twelve um, percent of what goes on. In gluten immune reactivity, though, is, is celiac disease, but the vast majority of what goes on in, with gluten immune reactivity is non-celiac gluten immune reactivity. And they're all equally serious. They all are all equally life-threatening and all have uh, the equal potential to generate, um, you know, autoimmune conditions and things like that. But it's, you don't have to have gluten immune reactivity in order for what I'm describing to occur. And so every time you eat gluten, you open the floodgates and allow things into your bloodstream to reinteract with your immune system in ways that can set up an immune response to almost anything you're eating that have that potential to set up an immune response, particularly if your digestion is not fabulous. And so um, the other thing is that so gluten always, always damages the gut, always, in everybody, okay? Now, celiac disease is not a gastrointestinal disease. In fact, celiac disease has, in recent years, been more uh, broadly understood by researchers as, as um, probably seven out of ten times more directly affecting the brain and nervous system than the gut. But it was originally discovered as something that eroded the, um, and attacked and eroded the microvilli in the gut um, through an enzyme called transglutaminase 2. But there's transglutaminase 3, transglutaminase 6, you know, there are all these other transglutaminase enzymes that, that as a result of gluten can impact adversely in, auto, you know, in an autoimmune fashion almost any tissue in your body. Now, gluten isn't responsible for every single autoimmune disease, However, it absolutely is a factor in, in exacerbating every autoimmune disease that exists. And autoimmunity right now is the number three cause of death, of morbidity, rather, of not three cause of death, the number three cause of morbidity and mortality in the industrialized world, right behind cancer and heart disease, if we're talking about autoimmunity as a collective whole. And uh, gluten is thought to be... Um, you know, contributing factor to all of them. Now, it's sort of interesting because there's overlap here. 
the number one cause of death in a, in a celiac patient is, is a cardiovascular event. The number two cause of death is malignancy. So there's crossover. And uh, cross, you know, the, these effects, you know, can't necessarily be neatly teased out and separated. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a paper published, I don't know, it was a little over a year ago now, uh, suggesting that the initiating factor in atherosclerosis was actually, appeared to be autoimmune in nature. So, um, you know, we need to understand that we have this silent epidemic now. And I think it, it, one of the things that, that has occurred is that the incidence of just full-blown celiac disease alone has increased over 400% in just the last 50 years alone. And um, again, celiac disease comprises only 12% of what, of what makes up the totality of gluten immune reactivity. Um, and so this is a huge problem. Gluten isn't a food, folks. It's a contaminant. Uh, there's no reason to have it in anyone's diet. There's no one on earth that is suffering a gluten deficiency or a grain deficiency in general, for that matter. And there are non-gluten grains, but here's another phenomenon, that when it comes to um, uh, gluten and, and how it impacts the body, or rather when it, when it comes to the immune system and how it interacts with antigens, right, um, with substances that have the potential to elicit an immune reactivity, there is a phenomenon known as cross-reactivity that's very well documented. This isn't, this isn't controversial at all within the field of immunology. It's controversial occasionally in the popular press and on certain blogs and things, but it really isn't controversial in the field of immunology. And what that means is that there are other uh, foods that contain molecules that are either molecularly very similar to gluten or they, well, and it does really amount to molecular mimicry. It amounts to amino acid sequences that are similar to the amino acid sequences found in the gluten molecule. Um, and one of the other culprits are some of the uh, grains uh, that are technically not gluten-containing in the manner that that people think about when they think of gluten-free foods, etc. However, they're similar enough, uh, more cl closely related enough that in some people, some sensitive people, their immune system cannot tell the difference. Now, interestingly, the most powerful of these and, or the most common of these by far are dairy proteins. Uh, and half of everyone that has gluten immune reactivity also has an immune reactivity to dairy. And when that occurs, that's considered a cross-reactivity. And what that means is that um, when a person with that cross-reactivity sits down and drinks a glass of milk, they may as well have just eaten a loaf of bread. Uh, their immune system will see them as the same thing and react in exactly the same way. So say they're on a gluten-free diet, but they're still imbibing the dairy or um, other grains include uh, that, that are potentially cross-reactive, include oats, even gluten-free oats, include, um, uh, include millet, uh, include corn and rice. 
believe it or not. Uh, and, um, you know, there's, there's an interesting thing that seems to happen with crappy instant coffee. Uh, there's something in the coffee bean that, that has been highly processed, whether it's instant coffee or whether it's just the pre-ground, highly processed crap that usually comes in sealed cans, and I won't name brand names. Uh, but when a person is cross-reactive to that, um, it's a particularly virulent, virulent uh, cross-reactivity, and we're not exactly sure, or I should say the, the researchers doing this are not exactly sure, I'm friends with some of them, whether it has to do with changes that have occurred during the processing to the proteins contained in these things, or whether it has to do with cross-contamination based on how these, uh, the, the environments in which these foods are, are, are processed. Um, and, so, um, Nora, we're yeah. going to have to take a quick break take here. Okay. Yeah, so um, the, this is great information. And anybody that's listening, um, Nora's book is full of, of way more than this. And this is called Primal oh, yeah. Body, Primal <laughs> Mind, Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. So if you're finding any of this um, interesting, you'll find way more information in this book. Um, we're talking today with Nora Gedgaudis. Uh, she is an experienced nutritional consultant, and we are discussing her book. Uh, we're going to be back shortly with uh, Nora, so stay tuned. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Hi, I'm John Rainey, Chief Financial Officer of United Airlines, and I'm honored to be the National Chair for the 2015 March for Babies campaign for the March of Dimes. United is a proud supporter of the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more mothers have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Please join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit marchofdimes.org. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Everybody, welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. Today, we're speaking with Nora Gagaudas. She is the author of Primal Body, Primal Mind, Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. So, Nora, we talked um, before the break about, uh, you know, gluten and, and gluten sensitivity and celiac. Um, how can somebody find out that they do have a gluten sensitivity or a celiac disease? Right. So, 
there's only really, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, yeah, I tested for that, and they said I don't have it. People have to realize that the, the way that gluten is tested for, or gluten sensitivity, rather, and, and celiac are tested for, um, is, is an antiquated um, method of testing that is maybe, at best, 25% accurate. Uh, by far, false negatives are the norm and not the exception. And you have to understand, there are at least nine um, different proteomes of, of gluten that are, are commonly known to elicit immune response in people. And what labs routinely test for uh, is just one, which is alpha-gliadin. Uh, and the other thing is that we have a, a variety of immunoglobulins. We have IgA, IgG, etc. immunoglobulins. Uh, we have others as well, but IgA and IgG are the primary ones when it comes to identifying immu- immune reactivity. Um, the only one for which, which is ever tested with is IgA. And it's very common for people to be depleted in IgA. If you've been under a lot of stress, of course, I don't know anybody like that, but um, if, you've ever, if you've been under a lot of stress or you're depleted in some way, your IgA levels may be in the toilet. And if you don't have any of that immunoglobulin to react with, then, uh, and, and say, for instance, you don't necessarily have uh, a reactivity to alpha-gliadin, but you, you react like crazy to omega-gliadin, or you are, are, are just, you know, your immune system lights up like a Christmas tree when it's exposed to wheat germ gluten and, or to gluteomorphin or to protonorphin, etc., then um, you're basically going to be in the dark with, with the answers that come to you. Uh, you'll get a negative, and it'll tell you you're fine when you're not fine. There's only one lab on Earth that actually bothers to look at all nine proteums, which is eight more than anybody bothers to test for, and also looks at IgA and IgG and uh, immune reactivity. And to, to those proteums, in addition to the fact, in addition to looking at whether or not you are generating uh, activity with transglutaminase enzymes, which can imply specific tissues that gluten may be targeting and damaging currently. It looks at that. And all of this is uh, the quality control is such that everything is tested within one or tests within one to two standards of deviation of sensitivity. In other words, most labs, you know, uh, maybe have six or seven or ten, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, degrees of, of um, uh, standards of deviation of sensitivity that are, are, allow a lot more things to fall through the cracks. Very little falls through the cracks with Cyrex. They are the most accurate, the most comprehensive. They're at least a decade ahead of everybody else. And a lot of their testing is highly proprietary. And so it's the only lab I recommend. I think almost any other form of gluten testing is quite literally a waste of time, including intestinal biopsies. Um, as a as a determinant of whether you, are, you have gluten problems or celiac disease, even because celiac disease most often affects the brain and nervous system and not the gut. Only some percentage of the time does it affect the gut. So, well, you know that that's one of the the comments that you hear a lot from people where, um, you know, they eliminate gluten and they're 
their gut doesn't change, but they'll have more energy and their brain fog is gone and their joint pain is gone, um, you know, and they feel better overall. They're sleeping better. Um, yes. But, well, there are other things that could be happening with them, but yeah, absolutely. There's nothing but good things that can happen to anybody that eliminates uh, grains and gluten from their diet. There's just, there's no reason to have them. We're not genetically adapted to them. Um, and, uh, you know, they're I- immunologically basically... Uh, you know, a liability for us uh, more than they are a benefit. And yes, they contain some nutrients. Most of those nutrients are bound up in, um, you know, in, in phytates and, and fiber and things like that, that through which our body, which our body cannot access um, because we can't digest them properly. And there isn't a single nutrient present in grains that is not present in, uh, in animal source foods and in much higher uh, levels and more bioavailable uh, levels, and in other foods as well, like you know, various fibrous vegetables and greens. If you were to look at my dinner plate, for instance, uh, you would see an absence of any kind of sugar starch. You would see maybe two to three ounces of protein from, uh, from some manner of animal source food or possibly uh, uncontaminated fish, which is harder and harder to find. And you would see more vegetables on my plate than anything else. But vegetables have almost negligible caloric contribution. The majority of the calories actually are coming from fat, um, from both the, the animal source foods on my plate and from, excuse me, to other things that I add to it. Um, there may be some avocado. There may be olive oil on, uh, on the greens. Um, I, I tend to cook my foods in um, in things like tallow or things like duck fat or uh, sometimes uh, there's a cultured ghee that is totally protein-free made by pure Indian foods. Best ghee on the planet, it's called cultured ghee, and it's one particular type of ghee that they carry that actually has been certified protein-free. So it's literally the only dairy product that I consume. Um, I don't do butter because it contains too many milk solids that I can cross-react to. Uh, and uh, I'll use coconut oil, which is, you know, perfectly legit. It's, it's actually a great oil to cook with. It's, it's very stable, provides some good medium-chain fats that are great for your immune function and other things. Um, so I think uh, this macadam- might be a, a good place... Oil. I think this might yeah, be a go good ahead. place to talk about, um, you know, especially in your first story, you said with that boy that you had increased his fats. And um, I think this is something important to bring awareness to that a lot of people are actually afraid of fats because of that low fat fad that uh, went through our society. Can you explain how important those are? Yeah, it's been nearly a century of misinformation. And a lot of it was driven by the interests of the sugar industry. And that has actually recently come out in the press where documents were discovered in which um, there was a whole campaign by the sugar industry to make fat look like it was, uh, you know, when they were trying to figure out what was causing cardiovascular disease, you know, Dr. Paul Dudley White, who wrote the very first textbook on, 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 on cardiology, on cardiovascular disease, rather, he knew that fat wasn't the problem. He believed sugar was the problem. But there were political forces and lobbyists in place that wanted to suppress what was coming out about cardiovascular disease, which is a modern-day phenomenon, okay, modern-day phenomenon. If you graduated medical school in 1910, you never heard of anything, you know, called, you know, cardiovascular disease. 
1911, the first four papers on the subject were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association as some odd, outlying, weird thing that was, that was popping up here and there. By 1950, it was the leading cause of death. Did we suddenly start eating lots of fat and cholesterol? We'd been eating fat and cholesterol for 2.6 million years, and now it's catching up with us. You know, it was the introduction of, of, you know, you have to realize we went from a diet that was mostly fat-based diet in terms of caloric intake to one that suddenly became dominated by carbohydrates for the first time in human history and generating tidal waves of insulin to which we have, um, abs- we, to which we have very little defense. And when you produce tidal waves of insulin all the time, you're, you're bound to generate insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is what leads to metabolic diseases, is what leads to obesity, and uh, what leads to, you know, is a contributory cause of things like diabetes and heart disease and, and cancer, for that matter. Um, cancer is being, incre- being increasingly recognized now, um, not as a genetic disorder, but as a metabolic disease. Um, and it, there, there is a paradigm shift occurring now on, um, in, in some circles in medicine that are beginning to recognize that and, and are having much better success treating cancer when they approach it from that, you know, more simplified uh, perspective. So it's, it's um, you know, fat is not the problem. It never was. Natural, naturally occurring fat from animals that have been fed a diet that is natural to them. And by that, I mean 100% grass-fed and finished foods, 100%, you know, uh, pastured meats, um, you know, you know, chicken, pork, whatever, as opposed to animals that have been raised in feedlots. And unfortunately, 97% of, of the meat that's consumed today comes from these horrifying, you know, operations called, you know, conf- in a confined animal uh, um, feedlot operations, and they are polluting, they are detrimental to the environment, and I have nothing to do with any kind of meat that comes from that type of production, and unfortunately it's 97% of the meat production. None of that changes, folks, until, you know, we demand something different. This planet was blackened by ruminant animals that thundered across the landscape for tens of millions of years before we ever came along, and the planet did just fine. And as a matter of fact, where natural systems are, where the raising of ruminant animals for food is, is adopted as a more natural systems approach, um, there is no loss of habitat for other animals the way there is for agricultural um, endeavors or uh, feedlot endeavors. You know, the whole feedlot industry depends on the agricultural industry to sustain itself. And a lot of the, what animals are fed are genetically modified feeds, and they're shot full of hormones and antibiotics, and they're filled themselves with stress hormones from the horrible lives that they lead, and we get to ingest that. That kind of meat is not food. The health of the meat you eat depends upon the health of the animal that meat came from. Now, you can get as, as many omega-3s per gram in a piece of grass-fed meat, right, the omega-3s that feed your brain that are actually in part what differentiate us from every other species because it's that essential fatty acid that dominates the composition of our brain, um, whereas it's omega-6s that dominates the brains of primates. Um, so omega-3s are, have given us this, this amazing brain. You can get as many, and if they're not in your diet, folks, they're not, they're not in your brain. 
Okay, so, the forms of omega-3 that we need come from animal source foods only. And you can get as many in a piece of meat as you would from a piece of wild-caught salmon uh, if that animal, if that piece of meat was from an animal that ate a diet of nothing but natural forage its entire life. Not where it ate grass for nine-tenths of its life and then it was thrown into a feedlot for the last few weeks. The omega-3s go away. If you get a piece of meat that spend any time in a feedlot, chances are the omega-3s are gone. Chances are a lot of the nutrients are gone. Beta-carotene, there's beta-carotene in meat, by the way, folks, that's grass-fed. You know, a lot of the beneficial nutrients, CLA, conjugated alpha-linolenic acid, which is known to be very anti-cancer, one of the most anti-cancer nutrients around, that goes away in feedlot meat. Um, so, Nora, I'm just going to interrupt you. I'm go going to have to end end the show shortly, and I just want to make sure um, before we end, if there's a way um, people can get in touch with you, uh, if they have more questions. Your book is so full of this kind of information, and I'm sure that yeah. we're going to be leaving people with a lot of questions. So, is there a way that people sure. can contact you? Yeah, I, my website is www.primalbody-primalmind.com. And uh, there's, you know, there's a, a, a contact information is there. There's, there's a lot of free information. Um, I used to have a Voice America podcast myself. And, um, um, and the, all of those are available there. They're free for download on my website. Um, and I also have a lot of articles. There's a lot of, there's a lot of information, a lot of free information. I also have for people that are inclined to get a more thorough education on the subject matter, uh, a, a mastermind series currently that I'm, I'm getting ready to start that is a 10 or 12 week educational series uh, that is extremely in-depth and thorough and I, I'm only limiting it to 30 people. So, and, and it's closing fast. Uh, there's, there are very few spots left on this. So people are interested, they can inquire about that and they will be sent information. And I also have a new book coming out uh, in mid-January that's being published by Simon & Schuster here in the States and Allen and & Unwin in the U.K., throughout the U.K., a uh, major publisher there. Uh, it's called Primal Fat Burner. Uh, no, it's not just a, a diet book or something like that. It's, it's a heck of a lot more than that. Um, and it's going to actually offer some things that have never been really said before that have been needed to be said for a long time. So um, I think that's going to be a big one. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a very informative show. Um, So I appreciate you joining me. I appreciate the invitation to be here. And um, I'm very, very, uh, yeah, very, very happy to have been able to, uh, you know, to offer some, you know, to offer some insights about, um, you know, about this whole thing. And again, people shouldn't hesitate to contact me if they have any further questions. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nora. We were talking today with Nora Gaudis. She's the author of the book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. Um, So thank you, everybody, for tuning in and be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.